Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Welcome everyone to CRISPR Cuts. Today's episode, we're not covering medicine or science communication. It's something different, but also equally important. We are covering CRISPR in agriculture. So today with us, we have Jessica Lyons and Michael Gomez, and they're going to talk about their work in cassava. So welcome, guys. Uh, Please introduce yourselves to our audience. Hi, I'm Jess Lyons. I'm a staff scientist in Dan Rockstar's lab at UC Berkeley and the PI of our project at the Innovative Genomics Institute to use CRISPR to engineer cassava without cyanide. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Gomez. I'm a postdoctoral scholar in the Staskowitz lab at the Innovative Genomics Institute. Also working with Jess uh, on cassava and other crops for disease resistance. Perfect, thanks. Can you both talk a little bit about how you got into this space of, you know, either being interested in agriculture and then also getting into CRISPR in agriculture? Now, maybe sure. we'll start with yeah. you, Jess. Yeah. Sure. Um, I come at this from the end of genomics. So I, I've been working on cassava since 2012 and um, yams since 2015 or something. So I'm really interested in using modern genetic approaches to facilitate the improvement of African crops. And so, um, you know, as CRISPR became more of a a thing and more of an option for cassava, that was sort of my segue um, into collaborating with Michael and and, um, his PI, Brian, on using CRISPR in cassava. I entered grad school uh, in 2012 with a really strong interest in diseases, how they work, uh, how the interplay is with the host. And at that time was when CRISPR uh, emerged. Uh, and it has been a roller coaster seeing how this technology has been applied. It's been a lot of fun. And I'm excited to apply it for uh, disease resistance, but also for consumer safety, uh, in this case with uh, cassava. I saw a video that uh, you both had shared with me before. So it's super interesting, your project, and it would be great if, you know, you could give a quick overview on what exactly you do and how you're using CRISPR in cassava. Yeah, so the, the impetus of our project is that cassava, well, for those who don't know, cassava is a really important staple crop for trop- people who live in the tropics around the world. About a billion people in the world rely on it as a staple. Um, it has these starchy, tuberous roots that are a really great source of calories. And so it's a billion people around the world and about 400 or 500 million Africans, 40% of Africans. So cassava is a really important crop. And one issue with cassava, though, is that the roots contain a precursor of cyanide, that when the root is consumed, um, the cyanide can be released in the body. Now, when the cassava is properly processed, then the cyanide is removed. But there are a lot of reasons that that might not be done appropriately. There may be reasons that the, the person processing the cassava might take shortcuts or why they might not be able to do the processing. You know, the processing could involve something like soaking for a few days. So if you're starving, then that might not be an option for you. Um, the processing also falls disproportionately on women. So it's a lot of work. And so the, the impetus of our project is to really mitigate those neurotoxic effects of accidental 
and or chronic ingestion of the cyanide and also the the work that it requires to, to process it. Yeah. No, I mean, how would you test the success of your experiments? Sure. Well, we, we can measure the cyanide in the roots. Um, so we have, you know, in our greenhouse, we have little baby plants that get up to a few feet tall and we... Um, Thanks to our colleagues at the Danforth Center, we have learned that if we put them in small pots, they'll make roots more quickly, the tuberous roots. So we have these little sort of mini plants <laughs> that have these tuberous roots, and we, we use a kit that was actually uh, developed by Australia National University for use in Africa, I think, um, to measure the cyanide levels in, in your tissue. So we take, we do, we actually measure it in leaves and roots because the cyanide is made in the leaves. So we take the some leaf tissue or some root tissue and we put it in a vial basically with some buffer and this paper this picrate paper that turns color when it detects cyanide and then we can loop that back off and get a measurement from a, a spectrophotometer so we know that when we knock out both of the genes we're targeting that code for this one enzyme at the beginning of the pathway that we don't detect cyanide in, in the tissue in the leaves or the roots so that's that's one thing um and then the other thing is, of course, we're interested in doing field trials in Africa, you know, in places where people eat the cyanide and where it's a, it's a you know, the closest to a real farmer type situation. Um, for one thing, there's a hypothesis that cyanide plays a role in, in pest defense in these plants. And so we really need to get them in the field to test whether that is so, you know, so people say it plays this role in defense. Other people say that maybe some of the insects have also evolved to get around it. So, you know, we're really eager to do sort of a phase two of our project where we're doing field trials and we're actively fundraising for that. You mentioned that this is largely uh, consumed in across Africa. Was that one of the reasons that you chose this project or did that just happen to come along and, and you kind of realized on the way that, oh, this disproportionately affects people uh, in one continent? That's a good question. The effects of chronic consumption of cyanide are most well documented in Africa. There aren't really cases that, that I think we know of anyway that have been documented. And I always say documented because, you know, diseases that affect people in the global south may not be well documented, right? Um, but there's another thing at play here, which is that cassava is native to Brazil. It was domesticated in Brazil, and it was brought to Africa thousands of years later. And so um, even though cassava has been in Africa for hundreds of years, the processing methods in South America, where it's originally from, are much more sort of canalized. And um, so there might be a little more flux in Africa, and that might have something to do with why um, these diseases, such as this paralytic disease, Conzo, are really only documented in Africa. Mike, is there anything you wanted to, to add to that? Well, just to add that, uh, a delight for me has been working with cassava because I grew up eating this. Uh, my Colombian family, we know it by another name, yuca. And here in the States, they may know it as tapioca, uh, the right. stuff that they get in their boba tea. Uh, so I think not everyone may know the name cassava, but everyone knows this plant. Everyone has had this and it's gotten around. And I'll, I would just add that, I've been work, as I mentioned, I've been working on cassava from a genomics perspective since 2012, um, and I've had the, the pleasure of collaborating with African scientists, and I've also seen, you know, through those collaborations, the importance of this crop and the importance of 
improving it more rapidly in the context of, of climate change and other pressures that people who eat cassava are under. That's very interesting. So are there uh, active studies also being done uh, in Africa to just try and, you know, uh, basically get rid of this toxin or uh, similar or maybe parallel studies to what you have been working on? So there were a couple RNAi studies um, maybe 15 years ago or so where they showed that by targeting the same genes that we're targeting, that, that are the first step in this biosynthetic pathway, that they were able to reduce the cyanide in the cassava. Um, but of course, RNAi is a knockdown, not a knockout strategy. Um, and we are using CRISPR as, you know, to completely knock out these genes in a stable and heritable way. And so, yes, of course, we're following on work that others have done. And, and that's the great thing about science, right? Other people figured out, you know, elucidated the biosynthetic pathway and showed that the uh, cyanide precursor is made in the leaves and transported to the roots. And we're, you know, as always, standing on the shoulders of giants with our no, that's exciting. I mean, there's, uh, yeah, that's true for most projects and we're always building on what's known, but it's it's still uh, really exciting to see CRISPR being used in this particular project. I'm curious that since this plant is, you know, largely, uh, as you said, just that the documented aspects of, you know, cyanide poisoning are not as much in the U.S., do you uh, foresee like regulatory hurdles or like just convincing people about why this is important in the first place? Yeah, so um, just to touch on the first thing you said first. So the reason that people aren't getting poisoned by chronic cyanide consumption in the U.S. is not is is a few fewfold. This poisoning that people can get, these diseases they can get, it's really a disease of poverty for people who are relying on cassava predominantly or maybe completely for calories. And then also, as I mentioned, taking those shortcuts or, or just not being able to process it completely. So those of us in the U.S., for example, um, those of us that eat plenty of protein, you know, protein helps your body detoxify the cyanide. And then we're probably eating, we're probably not just eating only cassava, right? So um, I'm confident that these diseases don't exist in the U.S., but right. So when we're thinking about other countries and we're thinking about multiple countries, of course, that may want, uh, where we may want to introduce or they may want to introduce our, our new cassava varieties. Um, yes, of course, we're thinking about regulatory hurdles and also the acceptance angle. And, you know, that's just developing so rapidly. We have to see how, how things work out. Um, Mike was just telling me about some new developments in, in Nigeria. Would you care to share about that? Yeah, so the regulatory world is quite dynamic. Uh, when it comes to regulations for transgenic crops that we would call GMOs, uh, that continues to be pretty firm throughout the world. However, small CRISPR edits, what we're doing, uh, that are akin to what is uh, acquired through traditional breeding, those may not be regulated as GMOs. And so countries like the United States, Colombia, Argentina, Australia, and Brazil, they've adopted that regulatory approach. And recently, I read an article showing that Nigeria has issued some gene editing guidelines that function similarly. Oh, great. Yeah, so the, the idea there is that, right, if it's if it's gene edited crop that has a transgenic cassette in it, as often they do, because that facilitates the editing, right, it's the, it's 
the CRISPR machinery, then it would be regulated as a, as a GE crop. But if it doesn't have that machinery, if it doesn't have the transgene, any transgenes, then it would not. And that's exciting. I mean, we at IGI are working on non-transgenic approaches to genome editing. Um, for crops that they do crossing, where you know where they're they're isogenic or they're doing crossing, they can cross out any transgenes, right? And then it wouldn't be regulated as a GE crop. For cassava, it's a little more complicated. Um, I don't think we had gotten to that yet uh, here today, but cassava is typically vegetatively propagated. So people take a stem cutting, you know, a few, maybe a foot long or a couple feet long, and, and you just put it in the ground and, you know, water it, whatever, and then you'll get another cassava plant. And the beauty of it is if you have a cassava plant or a cassava variety you really like, with the whole complement of traits you like, then when you propagate it this way, you'll get another cassava plant that's the same, has the same traits. Um, the drawback for that can be that cassava, we don't have like inbred lines the way some like a maize um, would. And so cassava is highly heterozygous. And if you try to do conventional breeding with it, um, which people do, of course, but it, it, it's arduous, takes on time. When you do a cross, the offspring are not going to have the same traits as the parents because the heterozygosity and all the traits have been sort of thrown up in the air and they don't land the same. Um, but what I wanted to get to is that's why cassava is such a great candidate for genome editing, because we can do the genome editing and then without, and because it's so precise, then we're not disturbing other traits, right? So in our case, we're disturbing just this one pathway, but we can do it in front of preferred varieties that, that, you know, people might like the way they taste or the texture or disease resistance, and we can stack it with other traits. Um, and then that is why we do need to get to the, the DNA-free or the, the transgene-free approaches if regulation like this is a factor. But it, it, you know, like Mike said, it's developing really fast. It depends on the country. Even, you know, people think of Europe as sort of anti-GMO, but Europe is really not a monolith. And Africa, everything's developing really quickly. Nigeria is at the forefront. And, and we'll just have to see. Even places that don't have you know, the biosafety laws in place to allow release of genome edited crops, field trials are still possible. So maybe the proof is in the pudding. Maybe they have to see. Yeah. And just to add, toward that goal of non-transgenic crops, the uh, Innovative Genomics Institute, uh, with regards to yeah, cassava and other plants, they're exploring transient expression of the CRISPR system and also nanoparticle delivery. That way we can deliver the CRISPR system in there, have the mutation that we're hoping for, and no other footprint. Yeah, no, that's, you know, it's super interesting. And my, uh, because you mentioned some of these uh, methods, uh, one question was also around, uh, you know, the experimental part of working on this. What are the specific challenges of using CRISPR in plants? Because, you know, we know a lot from like cell culture aspect of mammalian cells and that's those uh, protocols are pretty established. And are there any specific challenges that you phased or are facing that you had to kind of work with uh, in using CRISPR? Oh. So the challenge that we continue to improve upon is efficiency. Delivery into plant cells is harder than mammalian cells because they're wrapped around by a cell wall. And so we have to get creative. Uh, we can use agrobacterium. This is a bacterium that's been a tool for a very long time that can deliver DNA. We've been using it to deliver the CRISPR system in there. Uh, the real challenge right now is 
improving upon the non-transgenic methods. Uh, there are a lot of tools, new publications coming out all the time of very creative ways to do so, and we're implementing them uh, excitedly. Yeah, I would, I would just add to that that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but you know, the, the challenge for doing genome editing in plants isn't really specific to the genome editing. It's more specific to getting the embryonic tissue, having it be healthy, and regenerating it back into whole plants. So these are um, technical challenges that are not specific to the CRISPR. CRISPR works great. You get the CRISPR in there. You know, it tends to make edits, it tends to make them where we want, it tends not to make them, you know, we haven't found any evidence that it's making them anywhere else. Um, but it's really just the, the sort of artisanal approach you have to take to this very delicate tissue in culture. And, you know, we're lucky we have wonderful um, transformation facility at IGI and, and a great technician working on our project. Um, and it's just, it's just, this, it's, it requires a lot of skill, patience, labor for that part. I see. I'd just like to touch on the, uh, the impact that CRISPR has had uh, on the agricultural space. It's made precision breeding and agriculture so much faster, easier, and cheaper to do. Uh, making targeted mutations is actually nothing new. For years, scientists have been using zinc finger nucleases and talents to make targeted mutations. But these protein complexes can be uh, quite cumbersome to assemble. With CRISPR, the only thing that needs to be changed is that 20 nucleotides of RNA. In addition, targeting multiple sites or multiplexing, that requires just another guide RNA and not a whole other protein complex. So it's faster, easier, and cheaper. Uh, just expanding further down the road, that there's a great variety of different cassava cultivars. Uh, just there are different breeds of dogs, there are different varieties of cassava, and it's important to maintain that diversity uh, for disease resistance and also for cultural reasons. And so right now we're working with uh, an emerging, uh, a few different cultivars of cassava that we feel would do quite well in the field. Uh, and down the road, it would be great to expand to other ones to uh, give them disease resistance or reduce cyanide content or other uh, benefits. One of the points that you mentioned before about how this is particularly is more of an issue with uh, in populations that use this as staple diet and it's related to poverty um, as well, kind of reminds me of uh, a similar uh, case of uh, food-related toxins that uh, I've heard in India where it's the lychee fruit toxin and that also really affects people if they are um, if they don't have a balanced diet before they have this juice and if they are starving or something so it's very interesting that how this aspect plays into you know say food poisoning and and that is being considered so uh I'm curious to know one do you know of more such projects that one just involve food safety or even going beyond that uh you know just all the other improvements that are being done in say agriculture right now speaking on food safety there are is work to generate hypoallergenic plants uh, there was one collaboration between spain and the u.s to generate low gluten wheat and another work out of the hunan agricultural university in china to reduce cadmium accumulation in rice cadmium being a highly toxic metal cause cancer and other problems. And just expanding to other crop improvement projects, uh, here at the IGI, we are working for disease resistance. Uh, for example, trying to generate disease resistant cacao. Uh, and also in another uh, lab, Ksenia Krasileva is working to create novel plant immune receptors for disease resistance. Uh, another big 
direction for the Innovative Genomics Institute is climate change resistance and uh, climate change mitigating crops. Uh, so, for example, Richard Dodd is examining the role of particular sugar pine tree genes in drought and temperature stress. So there's a lot of potential that CRISPR has here. Yeah, and as, as we've already sort of touched on in this conversation, there's a lot of technological innovations with delivery, so the gold particle environment of the ribonucleoprotein particles. Um, and then also people are already doing homology-directed repair in plants. So even there's a case of, well, so for people who don't know, homology-directed repair or HDR is where you can swap in your sequence your desired sequence. So instead of like what we're doing here is we're making edits and then we're choosing alleles that are you know going to cause a, a premature stop and break, basically break the gene. You could instead use HDR to swap in a different allele of the gene, swap in a promoter. Um, all of those sorts of things are you know slightly more technically challenging, but people are doing them in plants already. To expand a little further with this effort to reduce the cyanide in cassava, it's not only about health impacts. Uh, it could also be environmental in the processing of cassava, say at the industrial level, some of this cyanide can escape into the wastewater and have impact local animal life, plant life. And looking at it from an economic perspective, you can reduce the cost of processing cassava uh, at all levels. That could really be, really be a boon uh, to everyone involved. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, all these examples are super inspiring. I'm going to read up a little bit more. I did know about the editing in Kakao, that project for sure. Uh, yeah, but others are equally exciting. So I'm looking forward to do more reading on that. Um, in general, you know, I know this, the space is just exploding right now with tons of opportunity for using CRISPR and gene editing in general for all these improvements. So say, five years down the line, what are your expectations or where, where do you see, say, the future of agriculture um, with, with all these uh, explosive opportunities? Well, for our project, five years down the line, I would love to say that we had results of field trials or we had ongoing field trials. Like That's what I really want to see. Um, that's what really drives me. Um, and also to have the non-transgenic plants, I think they'll be a little bit more versatile for release. Um, gosh, as far as the field goes, it, it's really exciting. I mean, I think it'll probably be easier and quicker. Probably, you know, Mike's working on like some new promoters, for example, to drive the, the Cas9. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, the bottom line is that, especially in the context of climate change, we really need to be releasing new varieties of plants that are better adapted to this changing climate. Um, and all the things that come with it. So, for example, in cassava, climate change is causing increased drought. Higher drought or drought causes higher levels of the cyanide in the plants. So um, that's just one example of how we, the, you know, all of us doing plant breeding need to respond quickly. So I would love to see in five, even in five years, that um, there's also these pipelines in place for releasing these new varieties more quickly so that we can really respond to climate change. Uh, a technical uh, advancement that a lot of scientists would like is the improvement of precise editing. So, for example, homology-directed repair, HDR. At this time, it's pretty straightforward and easy to make a, a mutation where you want it, but you don't have much governance over what that mutation is going to be. And so with new tools such as uh, CRISPR prime editing uh, and 
HDR, if we can improve upon that, that would be awesome. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have one fun question for both of you, uh, you know, to end this amazingly interesting episode. Uh, so if you were not pursuing science, what what would you be doing? That is a fun one. You know, I minored in French in college, actually. And there was definitely a time when I was studying abroad in Paris where I was like, one day I'll be like a, a translator living in Paris, you know, just eating pastries and looking fabulous. That, that would happen. be the perfect <laughs> life. <laughs> That's a you great know, backup. I, you know, I use my French, you know, there are certainly, you know, there's plenty of Africans that speak French, so, and other ag researchers. So the French has come back around just in a different way. Okay, yeah, that's that's a great backup plan, though. You know, if you ever want to. <laughs> yeah, any, any time, really. I can yeah. <laughs> what about you, Mike? Ah, oh, shoot. Stepping away from the science and something. That's my heart right there. But <laughs> if, uh, if I could, I'd love to travel the world and eat all the food everywhere. Just taste everything. <laughs> um, maybe I could be a food critic. Uh, but I don't want to criticize. I want to praise. So, <laughs> praise her. Yeah. You could have a show. You could have, a, like, a travel food show. There we go. Oh, those are really good. Yes, that's that's a great one. Um, you know, with with COVID, that would have been really bad. But then hopefully moving <laughs> forward, <laughs> that that's a good backup one to have as well. Um, yeah, great. Thanks. Thank you, both of you, for you know joining today and taking the time. I really enjoyed learning about your Thank work. Thank you for your interest. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, For more great CRISPR content, please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.